podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about The Dead Zone. And as is our tradition, every time we talk about a movie that has been adapted from a Stephen King novel, we are doing The Dead Zone page to screen. We're talking about the movie. We're talking about the book. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. This one's just Sarah and me because it is difficult to get someone to come onto the show and expect of them reading a full Stephen King book and watching a movie. And this is kind of where Sarah and I get to catch up. This was a super fun one, and I'm excited to share the conversation with you. The Dead Zone movie is a 1983 American science fiction thriller film directed by David Cronenberg. The screenplay by Jeffrey Bohm is based on the 1979 novel of the same name by Stephen King. The film stars Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, Martin Sheen, and others. Walken plays a schoolteacher, Johnny Smith, who awakens from a coma to find that he has psychic powers, and then all sorts of things happen. This more or less describes what happens in the book as well. There are obviously variations. There are obviously things that the uh, film had to cut out for time, but it's more or less a faithful adaptation of the 1979 novel by Stephen King. How are you doing out there? How's everything going? How's your life? Tell me, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you excited about? You can find us on twitter.com at twitter.com slash youaregoodpod. You can also find us on Instagram at instagram.com if you're going there via browser like one does at instagram.com slash youaregoodpod. Or you can just find us on both places at youaregoodpod. We'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know what's going on. Tell us your favorite Stephen King book. Tell us why it's your favorite Stephen King book. We'd love to hear that. Oh, you know what? I haven't said this in a minute, but we make playlists that accompany each of our episodes. They are songs that we put together that uh, come to Sarah's mind, come to my mind when we think about the conversation we had, when we think about the texts that we're reviewing. It's fun to put together. You can find that linked in our show notes. Also, if this is a conversation that you enjoy or you enjoy us or you enjoy Stephen King generally, we recently recorded an episode with the Books and the Freezer podcast. We talked about Gerald's Game, the movie and the book, another page to screen. It was a wonderful conversation, and I believe it's coming out around Valentine's Day. Perfect. Perfect for Gerald's Game. Speaking of Valentine's Day, you're wrong about is having a live stream on Valentine's Day. Uh, Sarah will be there, of course. Uh, Jamie Loftus, friend of the shows, will be there, of course. And you'll get to see and hear Carolyn, which is all very exciting. So if you are a fan of any or all of those things, I imagine you are because you're here. Uh, check out the show notes for a link to tickets to that live stream. Or you can find it at moment.co slash you're wrong about. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Apple Podcast subscriptions. We can't make this show without you. We make this show a lot and it takes a lot of work and a lot of labor. Uh, Someone recently asked on Twitter how long it takes to make an episode. And I think uh, collectively what goes into it is somewhere between 20 and 30 hours an episode uh, between all of the folks involved etc etc it's a lot and so it takes a lot and uh we're lucky to be making this our jobs and we're lucky to be doing that with your support so thank you to everyone who supports us on either patreon or apple podcast subscriptions 
you get bonus episodes. Today, you'll get a bonus episode about the menu and Megan. It's a long episode. Sarah and I are talking about both of those movies. And it was a super fun one. I think if you've seen the movies, if you've seen one of the movies, not the other, if you've seen none of the movies, it's going to be a fun conversation for you uh, to enjoy. And we are grateful that you support us, and I hope that you enjoy the bonus episodes as well. And our February bonus episode will be about Sex in the City Season 1. Season 1 of Sex in the City. Sarah finally pulled me in. I'm really excited to share that with you. And finally, You Are Good is made possible by the support of American Masters Creative Spark. With each stunning shot or each brilliant edit, you're asking yourself, how do they do this? How can I do this? If you listen to the show, you might be a person who makes things in one way or another. I think we're all making things in one way or another. And you need to know, how do they do it? So if you have similar questions, when you watch a movie or you listen to great music or you read a fantastic book, American Masters Creative Spark might be for you. It's the award-winning podcast from PBS that illuminates the creative journeys of icons across disciplines, from film to comedy to poetry to music. Creative Spark just kicked off its new season. Its second episode is a great interview with one of our all-time favorite filmmakers, the legendary Pope of Trash, John Waters. He talks about good taste, bad taste, and the writing of his novel, Liar Mouth. And in a forthcoming episode, Ruth E. Carter, Oscar-winning costume designer for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, will be on the show as well. We love talking about costume design. As you will recall from our Devil Wears Prada episode with Eve Lindley, we could talk costumes all day long. And we probably will in our upcoming Sex in the City bonus episode. So follow American Masters Creative Spark on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts and tell them that your friends at You Are Good sent you. All right, let's go to the dead zone. It's not really a place to go. It's a, it's a, it's a part of, it doesn't matter. We'll get into it. You, my friend, are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Here we are again. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had a Christopher Walken impression, but I don't. Surely everyone has a tiny bit of one, right? (laughs) I, I think so. It was going around for a while, especially in the cowbell era. Yeah. We're covering the dead zone. And I love this book so much. Mm-hmm. And it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. And the book is about just like a 27-year-old school teacher, maybe with like not a ton of gravitas, I think. Alex, he's I just I I know where you're going, so I have to be clear about this. He is 23 at the start of the book. Oh god. Oh yeah, because he's like, and during he his first there. hundred pages. Thank you so much. Thank you for reminding me. A 23-year-old school teacher. Just fix that image in your mind. Just a regular guy, just a regular guy. And then again, I hadn't seen this movie in a while and turning it on and seeing it open with Christopher Walken at age 75, (laughs) scaring the hell out of a class by just reciting the Raven from memory. It's so great. I laughed out, I like laughed out loud. And I love this movie and I love Christopher Walken in this movie, but like... 
as I was saying to you yesterday, don't you find it kind of, in a way, hilariously heartbreaking that Stephen King, it's the 1970s, our friend Steve <laughs> King is top in the charts. Every book he writes has a protagonist who's like, oh, you know, he's in his 20s. He's a really hard worker. He's from New England. He drinks too much. He cares about literature. He's not handsome, but he's like tall and lanky and kind of you know, his girlfriend likes him. And you're like, oh, who is that based on? Who, what kind of a vibe are we going for? And directors are like, Christopher Walken. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. <laughs> the scariest looking men in cinema. <laughs> Christopher Walken to me never doesn't look like he does at the end of Deer Hunter. Like, it's like... <laughs> at the time. That's a fucking madman. <laughs> it's like David Cronenberg went straight to who is the hauntedest man in North America? Oh my god, it's so true. It's so true. Also, this movie and this story has some areas in common with Scanners. Yeah, for sure. Which didn't occur to me until just now. You know, one of the things I feel like we talk about a lot, and, and we're we're going to talk about the book, and we're going to talk about the movie, uh, as we do with all Stephen King titles, it seems. Page to screen. Page to screen. Page to scream. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you, thank you for this pun. But and and we constantly, I feel like, talk about how things shouldn't be TV shows; they should just be movies. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen, and you have as your video chat background, Anthony Michael Hall from the television adaptation of The Dead Zone. But I think this movie needed to be seven hours long. <laughs> I think so, too. And like the, my first thought coming into this, because I read this book eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, and I really loved it. And I think in retrospect, it's my favorite Stephen King novel mm. because it feels... Just like very complete, very mature, minimal fat phobia, <laughs> minimal misogyny. It's still fucking there, of course, but, you know, not for like huge sections. Yes. So that's really nice. But yeah, I, I was reading this and I was like, you know, if you had asked me in the roughly a decade between when I last read this and when I'm reading it now the decade that these characters live in the course of this book, <laughs> I would say, oh, you know, it's about this man who becomes psychic after he goes into a coma for four years and he wakes up and when he touches someone, he has the ability to see a tragedy that's upcoming in their life and maybe help them to avert it or to understand their character or to see their future in some way. And so he shakes the hand of a politician at a rally and foresees that he's going to press the nuclear button and has to, like, deal with the moral dilemma of whether you can assassinate someone who's going to destroy civilization. But really, like, that happens in the last 10 <laughs> minutes of the movie. <laughs> and it's really like this episodic character study. <laughs> I for a moment was like, did they forget? <laughs> Did David Cronenberg forget what his own movie is about? Also, quick question before you dive into the plot. Does this take place in Canada or the United States? So, <laughs> fascinatingly, much of this story, we start off in Maine, and then I would say the back half of the story takes place in New Hampshire, mm. which I'm very interested in as a choice by Stephen King. And then, of course, the, the movie 
it's <laughs> the first of two David Cronenberg movies that I know of, and I use the term loosely, that are filmed in Ontario and set in New Hampshire. And the other one, of course, is To Die For. Mm, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, the... the <laughs> I, and we can talk about the Stephen King choice and the, the, you know, New Hampshire in Maine's imagination before I'd say 2016, where everyone fully invested in losing it. Mm. New Hampshire in Maine's imagination is crazy, wackadoozle libertarian. Mm. So I could see him in order to have this character come up and be a realist. It's Jonah. It's also Jonah's character from, from V, right. which is very funny. And Jonah Ryan won't back down. <laughs> that I imagine is like part of the rationale for like it having a foot in Maine and being able to stay related to Maine, but like not get too far away. And yeah, this is a character that in Stephen King's imagination could only come out of New Hampshire. And that's because Mainers uh, hate New Hampshire. No offense, New Hampshire. So are you saying that Stephen <laughs> King is saying like, my state could not elect Greg Stilson, but New Hampshire could. <laughs> I am saying that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So what is, who is that? Wasn't there a guy? Wasn't there a guy recently, Alex? Isn't there still a guy, <laughs> a, a Monsieur LePage or something? <laughs> yes, Paul. Like, so that's where things, that's where things came kind of, and I said 2016, but really I guess it was 2010. That's where things came crashing down. Maine for the longest time, and main politicians, particularly Susan Collins, who was abhorrent and before her or alongside uh, who was the senior senator at the time was Olympia Snow, who was married to um, Bill Cohen, who runs the committee at the end of this book. Um, he was married to Olympia Snow. They all bank on Margaret Chase Smith's brand of the Republican who does the right thing in like the tense moment. Mm. And that for the longest time, like Maine's brand was quiet and a little conservative, but like would do the right thing. Right. And then Paul LePage, who was the governor of Maine from 2010 because of a split ticket, he won with like 31% of the vote or something by way of like, just like the, Hitler. It was really just not great and, and, and fortunately ushered in ranked choice voting in Maine really destroyed the illusion uh, that Maine had of itself <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, so so before we get further into the weeds because I cannot yes, I help know. but want to get into the weeds mm -hmm. this book is all weeds how are you going to tackle the plot here are you going to do the book and say where the movie diverges or are you going to do side by side what's the best way yeah um, gosh I'll just jump in we'll just see what happens so I just described like what is kind of the popular consensus of what the dead zone is about that it's about this moral dilemma and it comes up earlier in the book this question of like is it okay to assassinate someone but again I would say that this becomes an issue for our friend Johnny Smith who is our main character like in the last fifth mm. of the book would you say yes that's exactly. I don't know when he starts talking with the like English as maybe as the English as a second language student or the the like sort of the the Vietnamese immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's an immigration like prep course. But like, yeah, he starts talking about it around then. I don't know when that is, but then it gets real in the last fifth to, to your point. Yeah. So really, the book is like, I mean, this is fully I don't know if he ever left this really, but like, I feel like Stephen King's first books are all like what if books <laughs> and that's why they're so good right like 
What if a teenage girl developed telekinesis when she got her period? What if there was a mom and a toddler trapped in a pinto and there was a St. Bernard with rabies outside? (laughs) What if there was a super flu that killed 99.5% of the population and the survivors had to rebuild society? And therefore, what if, well, two what ifs. What if police psychics were real? (laughs) And what if you went into a coma and you came out of the coma and you had psychic powers, but they were both a curse and a blessing, arguably more of a curse, and you had to just figure out how to live with that. Another thing that I always forget about this story is that there's a, there's a whole serial killer story in here. Oh my god, I forgot entirely. And the thing that gets omitted in the movie is like the serial killer story is surprisingly on point for when this book comes out about all of the yeah. police's blind spots when it comes to finding serial their outright refusal to look at yes. the obvious person who is the serial killer because it's a cop. It's really good. Yeah. And it feels, you know, to me, it feels influenced by people like Ted Bundy, where in this case, we have, I think, a deputy within the town police department, the Castle Rock police, nothing (laughs) bad ever happens there, who nobody suspects and who lives with his mother in a bedroom that in the book is decorated with like clown art and little kid circus stuff, and which in the movie has cowboy wallpaper, which I think is even more fitting. (laughs) But yeah, this idea of the apparently law-abiding man who no one suspects. And in the book, there's even a revelation that he has babysat for the sheriff's daughter Mm -hmm. a couple of times. And, you know, when I was a teenager first reading about serial killers in the 70s, that was when I first noticed references to police psychics. And that this was just kind of a thing that police did and still do. And if you're stumped, it's kind of, it's not considered unreasonable to call in a psychic. And what's so funny too, is the thing that's stumping them isn't that it's like an unsolvable crime. It's they're just very obvious blind spots. And they're like, it can't possibly be my ineptitude as a cop because I can't see what's immediately in front of me and beyond all my biases. I should bring in a psychic. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like Manhunter as well, or Red Dragon, because it's like only Johnny Smith can somehow transcend the idiocy of his gender and notice something. The one, the one sensitive man. Yeah, he was given those extra feelings from the coma, and is cursed by them as he will monologue several times. I love this book. It's very stately. It's kind of a Dickensian novel. We get fucking so many pages on Johnny, student teacher, humble 23-year-old New England, first-year high school teacher Johnny Smith's date with his girlfriend Sarah, who he is taking to absolutely the last agricultural fair (laughs) in New England. Yeah, he's taking her to what is absolutely the Freiburg Fair. Okay, what is absolutely the Freiburg Fair? That's what I want to know. The Freiburg Fair is the fair I grew up going to. So based on the geography of this book, this is Castle Rock, right? Which is around... This is outside Castle Rock. This is um, Cleves Mills is where Johnny lives. I forget where the fair is. Yeah, so this is around Bridgeton, Maine. 
And in theory, I believe if they were going to the largest sort of in proximity agricultural fair, it would be the Freiburg Fair. And I'm sure King fanatics will be like, you're wrong and they'll tell me why. But it's great. It's fantastic. Like you'd go as a kid. It felt like absolute anarchy. There were always like older kids beating the shit out of each other at the end of the night. There was like a classic carnival uh, midway rides. Um, It felt big enough to lose your parents at when you were young enough to need to or want to do that. I never got to lose my parents. (laughs) You could be totally separate from them, which was nice. There's an element to it that my former company, Knack Factory, covered years ago called Woodsman Day that happens on Mondays. And a lot of kids get the day off from school to go see Woodsman's Day that involves like axe throwing contests and like climbing logs really fast and that all that sort of thing. It's like a it's a agricultural fair And these were, you know, when rural states in particular were much more reliant on actual agriculture. I'm not saying Maine isn't still, but not to the degree that it once was. Right. This is when everyone got together and showed off their best cows. Mm -hmm. And that that still is an element or they'd have like, you know, um, ox poles. And, Mm. you know, sometimes there are like car races, like and uh, and some of them have like demolition derbies. It's it's a real there was a time in Maine, and I'm sure there's this still is the case for many where this is the thing that people look forward to all year because they were able to showcase their wares and then see friends that you weren't able to see otherwise because of the distance or because you fucking work 16 hours a day. Mm hmm. There's also a reference later in this book to old homes week. And mm. is that because we're in a town People just open up their houses and you can go to where your house used to be. I don't know what that one is. (laughs) Hmm. I really want to know. I I love all these little regional things. I remember when I was in um, Nova Scotia one summer, I kept noticing all these signs in small towns for the strawberry supper. Oh, yeah. That's so nice. Is there a better phrase than strawberry supper? It's so nice. I love it. No, but I mean, speaking of that, like one of the things I do love about Stephen King premises and one of the things I find interesting about his kind of engagement with this culture of the time is that A, he's able to make plausible these very weekly world news type characters where you like you totally buy into Carrie or I do. I totally Mm -hmm. buy into Johnny and the way his psychic powers work. Like it makes sense to me. There's a logic to it. It's like the way Ursula Le Guin's magic Mm. works, where it's not just like J.K. Rowling magic, where it's like whatever you need it to do for that scene. (laughs) And if you think about it for even a minute, it has no internal logic at all. And I also find it interesting that like, you know, and is at times name checking the sources of kind of 70s media depicting people who allegedly have superpowers and acknowledging in this book specifically through the character of Johnny's mother, that, like, he's kind of pulling from a well of mostly charlatanry that is often used to, like, bilk sad and superstitious people. Yeah, and it's the description of how the power structure of keeping that that particular magazine, whose name I can't forget, alive and its authority alive, which is like, we'll cover you and we'll pay you and it'll be great. But if you turn on us, we will ruin you. Like, it's exactly the way that Harry and Meghan describe the tabloids in the UK and the new sort of Harry and Meghan docuseries. Mm. Yeah. And it also, it really made me think about QAnon many times mm-hmm. reading. So we have a couple characters, actually. We have our charlatan politician, Greg Stilson, who at the very beginning of the book, we 
establish in our first scene as a door-to-door Bible salesman who kills a dog. Oh, yeah. Because he just has an anger inside of him that he can't control, and there's no one there to stop him. And he's distributing Bibles, but also notably tracts about, you know, the Jewish New World Order or whatever, all of which feels very familiar. And then again, we have Johnny's mom who becomes progressively more religiously zealous until she goes to a doomsday colony while Johnny is in his coma and who is subscribing to publications that are like about stuff like psychic phenomena and and Jesus, but also again, like verging into anti-Semitism. Like I guess sort of this kind of publication. I mean, there's like something, there's something I find a little bit stabilizing about the fact that it seems like none of this has changed fundamentally. Well, I'm reading a book about the origins of LA right now. Mm -hmm. And people always shorthand this. This came up in the movie Babylon. They shorthand the thing like, remember when there were, there were signs that said no actors when I came to town and I changed that. That sign said no Jews, no actors, no dogs. Mm. And then like this book, which is profiling sort of like the three big heavy hitters at the time like one one of the people is essentially like a charlatan faith healer from the early 10s mm-hmm. and like the intersection of like anti-semitism conspiracy theory like like bilking people sort of at their most desperate and their most alone yeah. like yeah it's just it's a tale as old as time yeah <laughs> unfortunately <sighs> true as it can be yeah and it makes sense because i think like it's, I don't know, playing on the fact that people are more prone to magical thinking when they're also more prone to fear-mongering. And we have a culture that sets people up to hate Jews because mm-hmm. that's never not been the culture for most people on the planet. So that's, it's like reaping what's available to sell your little magazine or whatever you're doing or to sell your genocide, as the case may be. Or your records, if you're Kanye. Or your records. Ah! <sighs> So what is the Dud Zone about, you're asking? <laughs> well, so our humble 23-year-old school teacher, Johnny Smith, is taking his new girlfriend, Sarah, to the absolutely last agricultural fair in New England of the year. We see most of this sequence through his girlfriend's eyes, who is kind of thinking about her life, thinking about the school they teach at, sort of men she's dated before. She's feeling sort of like ambivalent about Johnny and sort of weirdly over the course of kind of a bad evening, she becomes sure about him. And he says, I love you in the car. And she says, thank you, which is better than saying I know, but not very much. (laughs) And then they go to the fair where in the movie, David Cronenberg cleverly has them go to a fair where there are no other people at all aside from the ride operators. And they ride on a roller coaster an empty roller coaster, and then they go home. And in the book, it's this whole sequence where Johnny gets this weird run of luck on the Wheel of Fortune. He wins a bunch of money. We've, at the very opening of the book, had the story of Johnny falling when he was little while he was skating and having kind of a premonition of a guy he knows, a guy who was at the pond that day having an accident with his car battery. And we know that this happened, but everybody else has forgotten it. And so Sarah gets sick, apparently from a bad hot dog. I love how hot dogs are a leitmotif (laughs) in this book, actually, the more I think about it. And then he takes her home. She's kind of decided that, like, tonight's the night they should have sex tonight. But then after 
she just wants to be sick by herself and sends him home. So he takes a cab home. The cabbie is complaining about hippies, and he's so busy complaining about hippies, it's 1970, by the way, that he has a head-on collision with a teenage drag racer who is in Johnny's class at the high school, and everybody dies except Johnny, who's in a coma. So many children die in this book. <laughs> yeah. At one point, like, 80 of them die all at once. Right, totally. And I think that, like, that's the most sort of reflective, I feel like, of Stephen King's time as a teacher in Maine. Is like, I feel like if you're a teacher, you're just like, wow, all these kids die. <laughs> like, so many fucking kids die in school, in my experience, in Maine. <laughs> that's what The Long Walk is about, right? About yes. how in Maine you just... The last kid standing gets to graduate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Valedictorian and entire class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's just so much death everywhere, and like more than there even has to be, I would submit. Um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah, so Johnny's in a coma. We have, again, this long section watching the people who love him, specifically Sarah and his parents. His mom decompensates and gets really into doomsday cult stuff. Her health gets worse. Sarah moves on and gets married. And, you know, everyone's process is different, but she does get married within a year. Like, she does move kind of fast. And I'm old and I do everything slowly now, but it's like, Sarah, you could, you don't have to get married just because you're 24, you know? I think that, I think um, this is not an excuse. This is not my, like, this is how it's done. Like, this is not who I'm looking to for this. But I think Pat Oswalt got married like 18 months after his wife died. Seems to be going okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm more just thinking about the fact of being a woman in your 20s in 1970. And oh, it's like, yeah. you could just totally. date around for a while. You don't have to marry the first law student you meet. Exactly right. You're exactly right. <laughs> it's like, so you don't even know what's coming in the next decade. Just yeah. like, And also, with what you've been through, people will give you a pass on how you do things for the next five to six years. Yeah. And then, like, you can go get your consciousness raised <laughs> by some ladies. Anyway. <laughs> Like, the only two options are not, like, wait for your boyfriend to come out of his coma and marry Walter. (laughs) Okay, so long sequence, people move on, the country does a whole bunch of weird stuff. There's a wonderful scene that I think you were telling me about when you were first reading it a few weeks ago where Johnny does awaken from his coma. He kind of has to, or else why are we here? And his parents are telling him what he missed. And he's like, so Agnew's president? And his parents are like, no, Ford is president. He's like, Henry Ford is president? It really, it just has the rhythm and energy of who's on first for (laughs) seven pages. And they kind of describe the 70s to him. It's so funny, too, because, like, they leave it as at an ellipsis. Like, Stephen King leaves it with an ellipsis. He's like, they're, like, mid-sentence in explaining how the 70s work. Yeah. He's like, this book can only be so long. It took me 120 pages to tell you about Sarah uh, deciding to say, you're welcome, or whatever in the car. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's like, oh, my God, I'm a quarter of the way through, and my protagonist is just waking up. I really gotta... <laughs> So Johnny is being taken care of at a facility where he's being studied as a long-term coma patient, which is the only way he can afford any of this. 
The subject of his medical bills is present throughout the entire book, which I love. I really love Stephen King's very understandable focus on what are people doing for work and how much is this going to cost? And I was also wondering, because like he just loves work, especially in these early books. He loves talking about the menial jobs that people have and how they're slinging hash and painting lines in the road. Like, do you think he ever just like went and like, I don't know, worked in a diner for a day because he felt sad to be out of the game? (laughs) This is what I do every summer is I go and cook exactly. at, a, at a festival because I'm like, nah, I miss doing real things. Yeah, I know. Real things are great. I mean, as long as they don't fuck up your back. Right, exactly. I miss the threat of like burning my hand. Yeah. <laughs> this is why you liked the menu, right? <laughs> this is why I loved the menu so much. <laughs> <laughs> is this into the point of like what you're talking about with Stephen King talking about people's vocation. I ended up having a conversation with someone like whose like whole thing was like business boosterism in Maine and like getting kids to want to be like entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And I was like, dude, like when I was a kid, like the most accomplished business person I ever met, like ran a forestry crew, you know, like what Mm -hmm. people do for their jobs was so part and parcel with like who they were. But like, I didn't know anyone who who worked like any sort of postmodern job until I was an, a full-on adult. <laughs> so it feels like it's like that is like very much like who the people, you know, we're now, like you've said this before, like you have friends who are super close to you who you don't even know what they do. Mm-hmm. I feel like this era and this time and this place that Stephen King's talking about, it's like, you know exactly what people do. Like it's not a mystery. Right, because you can see them doing it. <laughs> While you're talking to them. Yeah. When you say it like that, it makes me feel like you really are like, as so many people are like straddling to millennia, where like if you grow up in rural New England in the early 90s, like your life is so incredibly local. And now it's like, if you're living in rural Maine and you want to make a life for yourself, you should probably like start doing little TikTok dances. Well, it it lost. I, I feel like this is probably something we've talked about before, but like, Years ago, I found a town council, like, register, the book that says everything that happened that year in the town council, and it listed Mm. all the town council members, and it was the same names as the town council members from when I grew up. And like what would happen was you'd be on the town council and you'd work your job or whatever and you'd do it for like 20 years and like retire at like 42 and then your son would take over. And it obviously it was mm-hmm. a very patriarchal system. Like there's all these flaws and stuff with it, whatever. But then when the push to get every kid to go to college and get a bachelor's degree came, like all the kids left town and just never came back, Mm -hmm. which is not bad (laughs) necessarily. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a thing that like Maine was like, felt like moderately late to in like a substantial way. And so like the nineties and like old people of the corn, right? Like in 90, the nineties in Maine, I feel like when I describe it to people sometimes feels like the seventies of many other places because right. it, it kept that pattern for a very long time until everyone started to leave in like the late nineties. I mean, this is one of the reasons that it always annoys me when people are essentialist about like what people of different ages or generations like know about culturally or technologically 
A, because they're always going to be weird 14-year-olds out of time who have a crush on Harpo Marx, <laughs> like me. And B, because like your experience of technology varies so widely based on both economic resources and just rurality. Yes, definitely. For sure. Okay, so what's the dead zone about? So <laughs> he wakes up out of his coma. He has this Polish doctor named Wiesak. And in the section I always think of when I think of why I think of the book, Johnny is just discovering his powers. He asks Wiesak for a photo of his mother. He digs it out of his wallet and like holds it and gets a feel for it and has this whole like rush of a giant vision about Wiesak's mother, who he thinks was killed by the Nazis at some point in, in Poland in 1939. Uh, actually survived the war and is living in California and figures out where she is and connects them. And then Wiesak, interestingly, and in keeping with how people behave in this book, calls her, hears her say hello, and is like, I'm good, and hangs up. And is like, I don't want to bother her. This book is all about people who don't want to bother anybody. <laughs> That's why it appealed to Canadian David Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I'm the grossest man alive, but I would never bother anyone. So I really get it. I'd never, I'd never cold call my estranged mother. <laughs> <laughs> She's moved on. She has enough children. She has new children now. I love that detail so much that he doesn't talk to her. Yeah. When people talk about things that are very Stephen King and they talk about like the, you know, the macabre and the occult and monsters and stuff like that, like mm -hmm. it's like that to me is like a really Stephen King move. Is oh, totally. For a pulp horror to fall into a specific brand of like sentimentality could be very easy. And Stephen King does fall into a lot of sentimentality, but like that was not an arena where he did it. And also I have questions about how Stephen King feels about his mother from everything I've ever read. Oh so my God. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I'm willing to be charitable and say what I'm really wondering is how Stephen King feels about mothers. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like he loves Tabitha so much and like her yes. strength comes through in so many things. Tabitha is Stephen King's wife. If you're not Stephen King's stands <laughs> like we are. Stephen King's feeling about moms was one way pre-Tabitha and many children and then another way after Tabitha and many children, right. I feel like. The two kind of scary mom archetypes that I can see in like 70s to... 80s Stephen King is like the Annie Wilkes archetype mm -hmm. where you're like depicted as like fat in an intrinsically threatening way, mm -hmm. hence the famous Stephen King fat phobia. And you're like suffocating and emasculating and you like crush the spirits of boy children. I think we even got this with Ben's mom and it yes, a little bit. Absolutely. And then there's like the religious mania, you know, down at the roadhouse mom, who's like Carrie's mom, Johnny's mom, Fran's mom in the stand, like yeah. the mom who's too religious. And sometimes she's too Protestant, but sometimes she's too Catholic. And I wonder yes. if that's related to <laughs> the in-laws. This is a great point. This is a great point. Because we get this mom in the the form of the the serial killer mom, too, here in this book. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yes. Who like is like a good mom as long as the son is a serial killer. <laughs> Right. She'll be great as long as you're a serial killer. She'll really pick in. <laughs> okay, so Johnny's out of his coma. Sarah has moved on. She's gotten married. His mom has decompensated. He 
realizes he has powers pretty quickly because one of the hospital workers, I forget if it's a nurse, touches his hand and he has kind of a vision about her son who's had an accident. He says her son's vision is going to be fine after the operation. In the movie, we get a much more dramatic expositional approach to this where Christopher Walken touches someone's hand and has this vision where there's fire everywhere. The room he's in is on fire. He's experiencing the fire. There's a fire in the nurse's home and her little girl is going to be burnt up to a little crispy shallot and the water in her fish bowl is boiling. That's great. That's great. It's it's great. I watched a movie last night called Margot that's about a killer smart house, (laughs) which was essentially a somewhat updated version of the Disney Channel original movie Smart House. And like, I'm not going to complain. I saw the rating going in. I knew what I was doing with my evening. But like, it was all CGI. And I know I harp on this incessantly. But like, it's so great watching actors like react to something that's in the room with them. Yeah, his lap is on fire. Yeah. Christopher Walken is in a bed that is on fire and the blanket on his lap is on fire. Yeah, he's like spritzed down with flame retardant so he doesn't, (laughs) you know, burn up. (laughs) It's great. And um, yeah, so he has these powers. He reunites his doctor with his mother and his doctor is like, no, I'm good. And the media catches on because he's an interesting story, first of all, because he's been in a coma for four years and woken up, which is rare. And so he unveils his abilities at a press conference where a reporter is like, come on, prove it. Walk across my swimming pool. And Stephen King, who at this point probably hates the press for Mm -hmm. the reasons anyone who is in the public might have a good reason to do so, takes this opportunity to humiliate a member of the press. Yes. (laughs) And most fiction writers, when they write about a character, like kind of suddenly becoming famous out of nowhere. It's like, yeah, what do you know about that? But when Stephen King does it, you're like, that's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, and everyone around him is like, don't worry about it. He deserved it. Yeah, they're like, that guy is history's greatest monster. Yeah, he like, this guy gives him a medallion. I think it's a St. Christopher's medal that he feels and he understands that his sister, who he gave it to, died, I think, of an overdose and just kind of like accidentally psychologically destroys the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so this gives him a rep as a psychic. And so people just start like sending him random objects to try and read and help find, you know, lost family members, help figure out sort of mysteries in their lives or predict the winning numbers for the main lottery, which like Johnny the lottery was invented while he was in a coma. So he's like, there's a lottery now. (laughs) (laughs) And really, like, the book is about him trying to get on with his life and then a little bit of assassination at the end because the girl he loves has, like, married some Republican schmuck and had a kid with him. So they have, like, this one extremely bittersweet afternoon together where they have sex and then have dinner with his dad and play with the baby. And it's like, for a second, it's their baby and their family. And then she's like, well, okay, bye. (laughs) And Sarah is played, by the way, in the movie by Brooke Adams, who I love and who I feel was not in enough stuff. And who is not Karen Black. 
Did you think it was Karen Black? For the first seven minutes. Oh. And then when she cuts her hair, I was like, oh, that's not Karen Black at all. <laughs> she didn't have Karen Black hair. I love Karen Black. Mm, me too. I love Karen Black so much, I didn't know it was not Karen Black. <laughs> we just think every woman is Karen Black until it's proven otherwise. <laughs> so they kind of part ways. Is the private tutoring right after this? Is there something in the middle? Yeah, it's basically right after. I mean, the, well, the ser- the ser- he helps find the serial killer. The serial killer, right. Okay. Basically, yeah. that's it. And the mo- is, we're talking about the movie, it's just he helps find a serial killer for seven minutes. And we're talking about the book, it's he helps find a serial killer for 100 pages. Right. Which, like, <laughs> if it's a Stephen King book, then, like, 100 pages is seven minutes of movie. Like, <laughs> And again, I can't say enough about how... I mean, this this movie makes some choices for abridgment, for sure. But the thing that is primarily lost, if you have seen the movie and you have not read the book, I was repeatedly shocked at how on the nose the search for the serial killer went, where the police's many, many blind spots being like, it can't possibly be one of us mm-hmm. getting in their way, tripping them up. And then how, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, further in depth, but in the book, when they close in on the serial killer, we find out that the the mom kind of has known because because Johnny touches the mom and finds out like everything that she knows, and the deputy or whoever hear that they're on to him and then kill himself in a logical manner. In the movie, mm-hmm. for some reason, in one of Bravo's hundred scariest movie moments, <laughs> he takes. Barber shears that have the little clip for your pinky at the end. I never knew that's what that was for. Somehow uses that by like shoving it into a drawer so it's holding on. Where like if you just sneezed the wrong way, they would blow over. Mm -hmm. And then he puts his hands behind his head Mm -hmm. like he's getting a blowjob in a 1970s porn. And he throws his head down onto the scissors in a way that most certainly would hurt him a little bit, but not kill him. <laughs> I mean, you would have to have dead aim is the thing. And I, it's, it's, yeah. We see it. It's like in his palate. Yeah. And then like, there's one thing that's kind of like in his mouth, but it's, did he bleed out? What happened? <laughs> did it go into his brain? Where does your brain start back there? <laughs> These are important questions. Yeah. That was a choice. <laughs> It's a real choice. It's actually, I think, one of the most significant deviations from the book. Yeah, because every other deviation is cutting 100 pages. The movie starts 130 pages into the book, basically. Well, we have, like, the first 10 minutes of the movie cover 130 pages in the book. Right, exactly. Because, like, a huge portion of the first quarter of the book is coma. And we just breeze right through the coma. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yeah, I mean... It is such a choice. I do kind of want to linger on it for a moment because, (laughs) like, this is interesting as a Cronenberg movie, and I almost feel like it has more in common with a history of violence. Oh, yeah. Than the kind of things he was making back in the 70s and early 80s. And you can kind of see where his work is going in a way. And this is kind of... He loves a surgical scissor. He loves a surgical (laughs) scissor. And also, this is the only scene I can think of that's really gory. That's it, yeah. And it's also interesting for what we don't see, because I find that scene so effective because we don't actually see it happen. We see him preparing to do it and we see the aftermath of it. 
And I was actually, I've been watching all the episodes of Siskel and Ebert lately because it's just. I love this. Great. Because everyone's <laughs> like, Sarah, have you watched Succession? And I'm like, no, I'm very busy. I have to watch all these old episodes of Siskel and Ebert. And <laughs> they reviewed Seven and Showgirls in the same episode, which is kind of wonderful. And we're talking about how, like, one of the things I like that I didn't expect from them, knowing how relatively conservative they both are known to be in, you know, certain cultural areas, is that they'll often criticize a movie for not being sexy enough. <laughs> Yeah, Ebert loved to fuck, dude. Like, that's evident. Clearly. And I think Siskel did as well. I think they both did. <laughs> I love that. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, so there'll be, like, some, you know, some movie like Bolero, where you think the criticism is going to be, like, this movie is trashy and degrading and it's bad for America. But really, it's more like, it wasn't sexy. It should have been sexy. Why did mm -hmm. they say it was sexy? <laughs> Yes. If it wasn't going to be sexy. And that was a criticism for um, Showgirls and also just that it wasn't really earning its NC-17 rating. And they're like, but Seven, that movie should have gotten an NC-17 rating. And I think what's so funny about Seven is that, like, I agree that it's, like, ruinously upsetting to watch if you haven't seen it 25 times like I have. But like you don't see these things happen. You see the aftermath of what has happened. And I think that that actually oh, yeah. does more for us a lot of the time because that forces us to imagine it and we become our own depraved directors. I, yeah, I agree entirely. I, I do feel like it's, it's important to say that the other, I feel like, biggest deviation mm -hmm. from the book is, long story short, Johnny starts tutoring the kid of a political operative oh, yeah. who is, has the awareness of who this candidate... Played by Anthony Zerby. Their, their Tea Party candidate is, basically. Or their QAnon candidate. And he's the one who informs us that this guy's a wackadoozle if we didn't already know. Because like, also in the book, I find fascinating that he essentially has a stand-in for the head of the Hells Angels as his head of security. Yes! With the same first name. It's really subtle. <laughs> totally. Sonny, which I think his only frame of reference because he refers to it in the book is Hunter Thompson's book on the Hells Angels, mm -hmm. so, which is very funny. It's like there's a lot of circular meta 70s stuff happening. Yeah. And in the book, the kid he's come to tutor who he has a great affection for, he's finally graduated from school, which no one thought was going to happen. And he's going to go to a graduation party with his girlfriend. And Johnny realizes that I think it's going to get struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. And like the great white um, nightclub that just burned mm -hmm. up because of like flammable insulation mm -hmm. that happens and all these kids die and like hundred not a hundred maybe like 80 something like children 80 kids, something like that yeah. um, die and, and Stilson fortunately is convincing enough to change the course and in this movie which I I love because it feels a little more realistic mm -hmm. although I would have loved to have seen a scene in which 80 children burned to death um, he <laughs> I know you <laughs> The dad doesn't listen, knows Johnny's track record, knows that he can see the future. The dad doesn't listen because he finds it really important that his son finally stops being so faggy and gets out on the ice and plays some hockey. Mm -hmm. And the son is the one 
who is like, no, I'm not going to go because the psychic who we all know can actually fucking see the future doesn't want me to go. He told me not to go. He throws a fit. The dad is icy towards him in a classic dad way. And then there's no acknowledgement. I mean, it's acknowledged because the kids do die on the ice Mm -hmm. uh, from falling through the ice as Johnny predicted was going to happen or saw was going to happen. But like two or three kids, which compared to the (laughs) king total is like manageable, I guess. But there's no, there's no like reckoning. Right. The dad's not like, oh, you know, I should have listened to it. He just sits and drinks and like ignores that it happened. That's how you reckon in the 80s. And it's much more realistic than like the nice rich dad from the book who's like, I guess we should save some of our, we should save our children if we have information. So working up to that. Yeah. So Johnny, we have the serial killer plot where he, he comes home. He's trying to live a normal life. People are sending him random shit in the mail. He's like overwhelmed by the emotional burden of his powers. It's very Will Graham. And then he's reached out to by a sheriff from the nearby town of Castle Rock, Maine, where again, nothing bad ever happens. It's a good thing the sheriff from Derry didn't reach out to him because then that would have been his like particular doom. So the sheriff who's played by Tom Skerritt in the movie who I therefore encourage you to get pictures, Tom Skerritt, reaches out to him about a serial killer who's active in Castle Rock, like just in this one small town, and who in this small town in Maine has killed nine, not just women, but like nine-year-old girls, two women in their 70s, mm-hmm. like that whole age range. And Johnny comes, figures out it's Deputy Frank Dodd. We have a big standoff and death scene with Dodd and also his mother, played by the wonderful Colleen Dewhurst. Mm -hmm. And then after that, Johnny goes and in the book gets a job working as a tutor for a teenage boy whose dad is a mill conglomerate owner, like runs a company that like has mills in various towns throughout New England, which I also find interesting because like Stephen King... As everyone knows who read his book about writing, like, worked in a dye plant or something when he was in high school and, like, uh, you know, described it hellishly. And yet this guy is, like, a really nice guy. It's a weirdly charitable take on a guy who runs mills. Yeah. (laughs) What's going on with that? (laughs) Kind of, again, love Steve. I see a lot of his blind spots. Steve will give a guy a benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Yeah. It's disheartening to see the capitalist treated better than, you know, the fat or the girlies in this book. (laughs) Definitely. Well said. Or God forbid the fat girlies who have never been depicted as nice people once that I can think of. Well said. Maybe it's happened. He's written a lot, but somebody write in. Send a (laughs) self-addressed postcard. Um, (laughs) So he has this job tutoring a teenage boy played by a tween in the movie, and in the movie averts a hockey accident, and in the book helps keep the boy he's tutoring and a bunch of other kids from the graduating class safe from a lightning-caused fire at the bar where they're all going to party. Is it wrong to say that that kid in the movie is a budding young twink? Like, is that, is that the, <laughs> that's how I should describe a child? I mean, I feel 
like it's too early to say, but you know, I mean, I wouldn't, but I'm not your boss. <laughs> I kind of thought that that was like important in a way because his dad is such like a, is like, I'm a, like, I'm a man. Like he's like, he kind of talks like over the top, like yeah. manly. He's like, finally, we could go take you to play some hockey. And I was like, this is driving your, uh, potential manslaughter of your child, sir. Hockey is the manliest sport. It's very feminine to have all your teeth. <laughs> it's also like it occurs to me like like two kind of contrasting things. One that this is about someone trying to make his way in the world knowing that his brain works differently than other people and that creating problems for him all the time. And people being like, it's great, you have a gift. And he's like, well... And, you know, you can read that many ways. And one is kind of a take on, you know, literally kind of rebuilding your life after a brain injury or on kind of living in the world being neurodivergent because Mm -hmm. one of his issues is kind of this hyper emotional sensitivity. And B, you can also read it as a story where like repeated head injuries will unlock the hidden potential of your brain, which I don't think is a good idea to try at home. (laughs) Is the takeaway in the book, not to give away the ending too quick, but like, is the takeaway of the book that a head injury unlocked this thing or a head injury, what killed it? Like, did he have a tumor initially that, that the head injury unjostled? What is the physical logic of what's happening here? Is there any? My understanding of it, and I think this is just interior logic to the book and not, you know, medicine, is that Johnny has this skating accident when he's six that does something to his brain that they then talk about being part of the reason he's able to come out of this coma mm-hmm. after being it for so long and talk about there being, at least in the world of this novel, a correlation between previous head injury and emerging from a long-term coma. And it's like that previous injury kind of helps make the coma something that he comes back from and something that he comes back from with something. Right. Gotcha. And then I think, like, becomes the site of the tumor later. So it's like you get gifts for a while, and then you get a tumor, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So yeah, after he saves all these kids, he flees and goes to work on a road crew in Arizona, which I don't think is a good job if you're being described as underweight all the time because like yeah not ideal how are you gonna stay hydrated johnny um (laughs) and the mill owner dad keeps like hounding him and hunting him down to send him money as thanks for saving his boy and previous to this like while he was in his tutoring days he has been kind of watching the rise of Greg Stilson, who's a local politician who came to New Hampshire from Oklahoma, which, again, I feel like it like there's some kind of internal logic to the idea of like, of course, you couldn't come from Oklahoma and get elected in Maine, but maybe in New Hampshire. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Stephen King hates three things. People from New Hampshire, moms and Republicans. And snowmobiles. <laughs> oh, and snowmobiles like a motherfucker. I love how much Stephen King hates snowmobiles. It's my favorite. (laughs) It's my absolute favorite. It's where he channels my father the most. Aww. 
I mean, if you could remember a time before snowmobiles, I do get it. Well, my dad, I think my dad, too, was like his criticism. I would say it wasn't in his knowledge. And it's very funny because we were working class to very poor, I would say, like growing up, like we didn't have I was on free lunch. Like it wasn't great. Mm -hmm. But he had that classic the classism that exists there where it's like, at least you can be on top of something. And he just was flabbergasted that people would take out. And he was correct Mm -hmm. um, that people would like take out loans against their house in order to have like a second snowmobile. And he's like, this is for nothing. Like you're not doing anything with this. And, and, you know, he was pointing the finger in the wrong direction, but like, yeah, it was, my dad had a gigantic complex about snowmobiles. Hmm. Yeah, I never thought of snowmobiles as homewreckers before, but of course. (laughs) There's also a whole sequence where he decides to, like, meet as many politicians as he can to try and, like, get a vibe off of them during the campaigning um, leading up to the 76 election. And there's a scene where he meets Jimmy Carter. Yes. And why isn't there a scene in the movie where he meets Jimmy Carter? This is a great question. (laughs) He's not president anymore when you're making this David Cronenberg. Just get him out for the day. It'll be great. (laughs) But he doesn't really get a vibe off of any of them. There's like an interesting kind of comment in this about how like maybe he's thinking maybe he doesn't really get a sense of who they are really because they're so like well polished in what they present to the public. But then he goes to a Greg Stilson rally where Stilson is throwing out hot dogs. That's the second hot dog reference. (laughs) And it's just doing like there are many components that, you know, as Trump was running in 2015, 2016, I remember thinking about the dead zone, which I had read fairly recently at that point, and feeling like it was prescient. And in retrospect, I still think it was prescient. I feel like it's the biggest, like, not just prescient. I mean, yes, prescient, absolutely. But like reading this post, that Mm -hmm. thing. And to your point earlier, like, this isn't drawing off new anything. This is just drawing off things that are observable trends always in in American politics in one Mm -hmm. way or another. The promises he made, the way he talked to people, like the the kinds of outrage that he spoke to, you could hear, you could very easily hear all of this in Trump's voice easily. Yeah. The performative wearing of a hard hat for fun. Yes. Remember when Trump rode the truck? Yes. I think about it like every day. My two favorite aesthetic moments from the presidency are Trump behind the wheel of the truck, Trump in front of the table of McDonald's. What if, I mean, you could have just given him a new truck to play in every day for four years, and then he probably wouldn't have left. I mean, it's just distracting. Why bother him? Just fill it up with pink Starburst. He'll be happy in there. And there's tell him that he has to like dig through them to find the filet of fish. It's also funny watching, like, we're, while we're talking about this, who knows where this is going to land, but mm. we have no Speaker of the House right now because there are at least 20 Stilsons in, I mean, there's more, mm-hmm. but there are at least like 20 diehard Stilsons in the House of Representatives to the point where they, the GOP can't elect a leader. So, like, Yes, there were like always like a couple of these here and there, but like mm-hmm. the power that they have secured and the normalization of that power is what itself is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that, God, that's a whole other conversation. But like we, <sighs> Lauren Boebert is like a new flavor in the American elected Absolutely. official spectrum. B- built built on an old flavor. It's like when you put like a new kind of cheese in a, in a grilled cheese. <laughs> 
Okay, but anyway, what's the dead zone about? So, <laughs> so Johnny meets Greg Stilson at a Stilson rally. He shakes his hand, and he gets this like whoosh of like, oh shit. And what he can kind of feel his way to is that Stilson is going to cause nuclear war, nuclear Armageddon. In the movie, we get something much more specific. We actually have a literal vision of the future where Stilson, and I really love this. This isn't in the book. <laughs> this is a great scene. There's nothing precipitating this. It's not like things have gone pear-shaped, international affairs style. Stilson just like gets up one night and is like, I've decided I'm going to press the button. I just really, really want to. Yeah, totally. He's like, come on, General, don't be a pussy. <laughs> it's my destiny. Let's do it. And then the General's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And Stilson is played by Martin Sheen, the best of all the Sheen Estevezes. <laughs> I love him. And so basically, Johnny spends a little bit of time in both the book and the movie kind of debating whether, like, can you justify taking a life to save the world? And in both cases, he pretty quickly and reasonably, I might add, is like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> In the book, the thing that um, the one thing I'm sad, yeah, I, I obviously was kidding about wanting to see a bunch of kids burn. Though I would love to see how Cronenberg did it in 1983. I will say, yeah, that. euphemistically. I love the like monologue by the Vietnamese immigrant who yeah. talks about the man-eating tiger and how the all of the kids. All of the young men in town, all of the men basically in town, with the exception of sort of like older men who could no longer operate, are dead from various conflicts. And there's a tiger that's stalking the village and they have to trap the tiger in a hole and everyone, including like these young girls, have to stab it to death. Mm-hmm. It feels like Stephen King met a guy at a parade or something, and that guy told him that, and then Stephen King put it in in the book. I really enjoyed that conversation. And he's the he says if if I don't know, I, I want to be I want to be as ambiguous as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, well, you have to kill him. And Johnny's like, you have to like it's he's trying to like put on airs like Stephen King doesn't like readily believe this. He's like, you have to kill him. And the guys are well, politically. And Johnny's like, well, what if you can't? And he's like, well, then you have to kill him. <laughs> right. You, well, you can assassinate him. And if you can't do that, you have to just kill him. Yeah, I, I really a resonant story for our times. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Johnny starts broaching this question with people. And in the movie, he talks to his doctor, Wiesak, about it with the classic hypothetical, like, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you? And why was that ever a question that we debated? Like, not only should we all kill Hitler, but I would argue that killing Hitler is self-care. But you know what, I, what, what this book does really, really well in adds to that debate is the thing that's ever stopping anyone from that, I think, is not, should I kill Hitler? Because obviously, yes, it's, I'm going to have to live with the consequences. I know. Because no one knows Hitler's Hitler yet. That's the thing about hypotheticals. You get to go live in like this hypothetical reality where you're hypothetically time traveling and you don't have to go to hypothetical firing squad or whatever. <laughs> right. And Johnny's like, Johnny eventually when he embraces it is like, oh, okay, like now that I know this though, I'm going to have to, it's going to be bad. Uh, you know, like right. it's not like people are going to like be like, thanks for killing Hitler. Like they're going to be like, you just killed some random guy. <laughs> and, and I'm curious about what you think of this difference, but this is literally the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie. He like gets a vibe off Stilson. He has 
a conversation about it with his doctor and is like, all right. And then he goes to try to assassinate him. And in the book, he finds out in November 1978, we know because there's a Jonestown reference in the sentence that he has a brain tumor and that he doesn't have very long to live. So he doesn't have time to wait around. He has to either kill Stilson or never be able to do it. And so he goes and tries to do that. And in both eventualities, he takes aim at Stilson in a little town hall rally in New Hampshire, (laughs) misses him, and then Stilson, man of the people that he is, picks up a toddler In the movie, it's Sarah's toddler, Sarah's baby. In the book, it's a four-year-old in a snowmobiling suit, which makes you think (laughs) that maybe Steve has come a little bit around on the snowmobiles. (laughs) It's also, that's also the exact uniform of the little demons from the brood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, the snowsuits of David Cronenberg. Um, Picks up a little child and uses him as a human shield against the assassin. And so Johnny gets shot. He is dying. Stilson comes very conveniently. Johnny touches his hand again and sees that he's all washed up and his future is over. The least believable part after everything we just went through. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. And I've thought about that quite a lot in the past few years and of like, I don't know what story would get spun about how it's like the most patriotic thing you can do to like shield yourself with a baby but i know that we would get that (laughs) at least someone would try to make the case real hard yeah the thing that i like about what happens in the book is that johnny gets his nerve when he realizes he's gonna die anyway Mm -hmm. which like you know read about i'm not whatever however you feel about like where the red army faction landed when i could understand you having negative feelings about that or the weather the weather underground kids like they threw away their future to do what they felt like was politically important and like either got themselves killed, but them, got themselves in prison. Mm-hmm. Often, thankfully, to like overzealous intelligence forces, they got out of jail quickly because, because they had technicalities they were able to get out on. But like there was like a real, again, wherever you feel like you land on, on what they did, there was a, a wild-eyed bravery to some of what they did mm-hmm. because they thought that like fascism was at the door. Yeah. Or like with John Brown. Right, John, yeah. Johnny's like, I got like a year maybe. Well, fuck it. I'll go. <laughs> I'll yeah. Go take care of this thing. So I like that because like Johnny is an everyman. Like Johnny's not like a fucking X-Men. Like he's not like, he's not like a superhero. He's just like a regular guy who's wrestling with some shit. His name's Johnny Smith. Like how he could not be more regular. <laughs> exactly. So I like that. But to the point of like, I just immediately, and it sounds like you, you have been as well. I just immediately started thinking about how Fox would have spun that. I immediately started thinking about mm. like, We don't even have to think about it. Alex Jones Mm -hmm. spent Mm -hmm. years terrorizing the parents of children who got shot in the face at their school as a means of making a grander political point, but really as a means of having an... And of selling supplements. Right, exactly. Thank you. The fascism was a byproduct of being able to sell herbal boner pills. It's just that fascism, it turns out, is the best way to sell supplements. Yes. Who would have guessed it's like we don't even have to imagine it, it happened for the and he just got whatever he just got nailed for whatever the, whatever the court case was and, and and probably due to what I mean you guys covered this on the McDonald's coffee case he's probably mm-hmm. not gonna have to pay any of it mm-hmm. but no we don't even have to imagine it we've seen it happen for the past 10 years <sighs> and of course the argument which I never think of because 
my brain has only been hollowed out by my own separate issues and not these ones specifically is that like the argument would be like that's not a real baby that's right. not a real assassin false flag it's a hologram baby yes yeah. thank you exactly yeah and then the parent would come forward and they'd be like this was a government plant this is like an actor here's some pictures of them and other stuff like yeah easy Here's a picture of a baby that looks like that baby at an Applebee's in Fort Worth. So how could it be the same baby? But the only thing that makes it realistic to me that makes King's and, and the, the movie's ending realistic is that I kind of feel like the only way you can be an Alex Jones is with the absolute gutting and bottoming out of local press. Yes. And so much of this story is about local media, actually. Yes. Yeah, is just the fact that digital media both became like a very, very easy tool for people who have no shame in order to gain authority and do that sort of thing. Plus, just like the the abundance of information made it possible to get overwhelmed by like what is and what is not truth. And then it's like what you had like one, you had like the local newspaper reporter, you had the national news. Sure, there were conspiracy theorists. They didn't have av- like larger avenues in order to like gain collective power in the way that they do now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was <laughs> seeing that ending. I was like, oh, I wish we were still there. <laughs> I know. And we're not. Like, think about that. We're in a reality where, like, if a politician, if a right of center politician, to be fair, like, I was thinking about this, too, while listening to this, how, like, it's hard for me to think of Republican scandals, honestly. Like, what are the scandals? I feel like Democrats are really the ones who like to have scandals because we, like, are bothered or at least pretend to be bothered by discordance between someone's public persona and their personal life. Right. Well, it's like this. It's like the thing like Lauren Boebert's husband exposed himself to underage girls in 2004. I didn't even hear about that. There's that. There's the Matt Gates, like whatever he's involved in with mm-hmm. these people are the things that they are saying other people are because their political power is in shamelessness. Right. I have to recommend... My friend really wanted to watch this. I was like, God, no, this is going to be such a downer. I actually had a good time. This place rules the, I think, Andrew Callahan documentary on HBO. (laughs) That's like kind of documenting just like man on the street type stuff in protests leading up to January 6th, the 2021, not the Nancy Kerrigan one. (laughs) And, (laughs) And one of the subjects of the documentary is, you know, one of the many, and he's not unique in any way, but he's just an example of this. One of the many big QAnon believers who it turns out has a prior for child sexual abuse of some kind or for child pornography or for something in that vein. And and the kind of dramatic conclusion of the movie is um, (laughs) confronting this guy about it very gently at a Culver's, the best place to be confronted because (laughs) at least you're not hungry. And it does feel like there's something where, like, if you're engaging in a game of pure projection, then it's like, that's the thing most based in shame. Yes. Yeah. It's like the Catholic Church. Yeah. But it's like, I feel like what we call shamelessness in this capacity is actually like this brand of denial, like, so complete that, like, I don't know, you get like the asbestos hands from the menu. Like, you don't even feel what you're doing. It's like a real-time laundering. Yeah. Yeah, so I know. I thought about The Dead Zone a lot in 2016. 
I also thought a lot about A Face in the Crowd, the Andy Griffith the movie, where he becomes like this the best. folksy, grassroots, straight-talking guy, and then he gets hot-miked by Patricia Neal and his supporters here that he actually kind of hates them, and they're like, hey, I hate that you hate me. And the like best. both of these things would not play out in the political world that we live in no. anymore. No, no, no. And we should have a little funeral for that. That used yeah. to be a believable story beat. Right, right. Because it would be, you just covered baby Jessica and, and you're wrong about which there were obviously precedent cases like that beforehand, but with the, the new cycle and sort of repeated, like being able to focus on it like for, for 24 hours, that was all sort of a new phenomenon. The thing that was different was that like this would be a headline for 24 hours and people would have to think about it. Mm-hmm. The headline being that like this guy held a baby up and there was a picture a company. There's a whole like like amateur photography piece to this whole thing, which is really yeah. funny in the book. But the fact that like people would have to sit with that picture and not, you know, now it's like you see that picture and then you're going to see 70 other pictures in the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. You're going to read 20 other pieces of news in the next five minutes. And you'll see a deep fake of Stilson's opponent holding a smaller baby. <laughs> yes, thank you. Or a cuter baby. Exactly. You'll hear about you'll hear about Greg Stilson's opponent's drug-addicted son's laptop a whole lot. <laughs> <sighs> My closing thought on this is that these are two pieces of media that work well individually. And I think that as we talked about with The Shining, the dead zone, the movie feels a little bit understuffed, Mm. not in a shining way, in a people having feelings in Canada way, (laughs) you know, and I I feel like it really speaks to the challenges of adapting a work that is like so completely overstuffed and so full of point of view and so into relationships and little conversations with bartenders and random bystanders. And the, I mean, they're story-wise very similar to each other, but I I think this is my favorite Stephen King book. And if you've seen the movie, there's so much that you have left to experience. And I hope you do. That's a great way to say it. And I know that they did a they did like a TV miniseries, but like this is one of the few book properties, I will say, a standalone one season Watchmen or Leftovers style show. Yes. This would kill. This would be fantastic. I would I would love it. It would be great. And it would be just the right size. And I've never heard of them doing a miniseries of it. Like maybe I'm missing it. But the Anthony Michael Hall show was like an episodic sci-fi channel show back when the sci-fi channel yeah. still had a C in it where he kind of has a new adventure each week. So I don't think that there's been like really a faithful book adaptation yet. And that would be amazing. Oh, I didn't realize that that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. I would I would love to see that. And I, I never watched Castle Rock, which I, I think maybe had this character in it at, for, mm. at some point, because it because Castle Rock utilized a lot of these characters and imagined them in kind of like different scenarios. But yeah, similarly, I would I would just I think that this would do very well as like a, a six part Yes, it would be perfect. Also, read it for the thrill of the moment when a character references Carrie (laughs) and you realize that characters in Stephen King books read Stephen King books. That blew my fucking mind. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we know what is Johnny's dad's name? Do you recall? Herb. We know that Herb is Johnny's father. Mm -hmm. But who, Sarah, in your view, is the daddy of the dead zone? And, you know, pick either one, I guess. (laughs) I mean, 
My first thought is to say Johnny, and then that makes me think of describing the book to my mom yesterday and about kind of how it's about this long-suffering hero. And she was like, why are men always long-suffering <laughs> in stories? And I think that's a great question. That's a great question. Because I think it's just meant to be implied that women are long-suffering, but when men are long-suffering, you have to like mention it and make it their thing. <laughs> But women are just supposed to do it. <laughs> I can hear your mom saying that, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, Johnny is like, I don't know. I think you can't help but love him. He's a guy who is just like kind of completely fucked from the beginning of the book. Like he's our doomed character, and he has to figure out like how to work with his doom and how to deal with it and how to live with it and do something with it. And I also think, like, the book doesn't give you a choice about loving him. Like, you just kind of have to in a way that some might find annoying. But I don't for whatever reason. (laughs) And I am just going to say Johnny. I really love him as a character. And I also, like, this is one of the Stephen King books. And I think this is true to me of all the good ones where, like, when you finish it, you just, like, want to close it and, like, hold it against your heart and, Mm. like, sigh deeply and think about mortality. And um, what I love about Stephen King books is that they're all relatable because the message of them all is like, life is short, death is forever, love the one you're with. <laughs> you are good. You are good. Um, the So mine, I hate. I hate that mine is a mill owner nah. based on everything we know, but like, I it's love okay. that this dad, again, was presented with all of the information realized like put up a fight for sure like he didn't make it easy he but he wasn't a dick about his fight he was just like you know sometimes when presented with information that your people are in danger it can be hard to take in Mm -hmm. and he pivoted accordingly and saved his child and i appreciated that extra when i saw the um multiverse version of him in this movie And was like, yeah, that's a rare thing. Like, I feel like it's a rare, you know, it's one of those things where like all these dads who get up in arms about the supposed pedophiles that are in their school trying to molest their children and turn them into communists Mm -hmm. want to save those kids, but won't do a goddamn thing to not abuse their own children. Mm -hmm. So I loved this dad. Loved him, loved this rich motherfucker and, and his insistence, which was probably guilt laden more than anything else, but his insistence on compensating Johnny accordingly. Guilt is good if it leads to that, it says I. Okay, last question. First thought, best thought. Contemporary Johnny Smith casting. I'll go first. Andrew Garfield. Yeah, you you said that yesterday. I loved it. I think that that's it. Notably not 23, but giving 23-year-old energy. I will say, because we were with our Carolyn and uh, your and my great friend uh, Jamie Loftus last night, we were talking about... um, Oh, fuck, what's the guy's name? And um, he's in Ready or Not as the brother. Oh, Adrian Brody, Adam Brody. Adam Brody. One of the Brodies. If Andrew can't show up, I'll put in Adam Brody. Nice. Although he's like 40, 40 now, so that doesn't really work. But in his prime. But the point is that 40 in 2023 is very different oh, yeah. from 40 in 1983. For sure. You don't have to look like a ghoul. <laughs> And also, I love Christopher Walken. We love Christopher too. Walken. No doubt. But he is a menacing fella. And that's why he's great. But, you know. Yeah. More dead zone. More dead zones. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of You Are Good. 
Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and editing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. You both are great and we appreciate you. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats in this episode that made it sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Follow us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. Find us on Patreon and on Apple Podcast subscriptions for those bonus episodes. Next week, we talk about Amadeus. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you. You, my friend, are good. <laughs>